Ultra. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we are discussing all of the Marvel Universe. And joining us for the discussion is first-time guest Douglas Wolk. Welcome, Douglas. Hi, good to be here. Very glad to have you on. This is an ambitious uh, narrative for us to try to discuss, and it is inspired by a recent book that you've completed called All of the Marvels. And could you um, kind of give the elevator pitch of what this book is for our listeners? So All of the Marvels is the book about uh, reading all 27,000 or so superhero comics that Marvel published from 1961 to, well, I say 2017, but I actually kind of went on beyond that. But reading that entire thing, that 27,000 comic book, half million page plus story as a single narrative, as one gigantic story where every piece can be connected to every other piece. And that is just mind-blowing to, to even imagine, trying to tackle all of that. I'm saying that as someone who has uh, delved deeply into Marvel Comics and various other comic book series, but to try and tackle all 27,000 plus <laughs> that have been published and uh, kind of look at uh, the massive puzzle that it kind of is and how the how the pieces interconnect or really interestingly sometimes don't connect um, is, is just a really in- interesting kind of academic uh, project to undertake. Well, academic, I don't know about. <laughs> I mean, uh, in some ways, you know, it's a stunt. It's how do I come up with an interesting framework for writing about comics? How about, you know, I get to be evil Knievel jumping over 30 cars, you know, Stephen Merritt writing 69 love songs. Uh, this is, but it, it also does kind of fascinate me as a big story as a thing that is made by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of writers and artists collaborating across the course of 60 years and collaborating with each other, sometimes in the same room, sometimes across decades and across continents. And across lifetimes, sometimes, uh, I mean, very often now, um, the creators who laid the foundations that are, uh, you know, still being stood upon have, have, have passed on, and, but their work is, um, you know, inspiring at, at this point, you know, dozens of times removed from their original uh, storylines, you know, uh, new writers and artists are picking up those pieces and playing in that sandbox. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, maybe the, the first thing to kind of explore is the very idea of telling this continuous narrative is so fascinating. And particularly, as you've said, when we get hundreds and at this point, I'm sure thousands of creators who are part of it. And yet readers are kind of told, and there's a game of like saying this entire thing is just one continuing story. It it never ends. Um, There's very few uh, stories that I think can compare to that. Um, you know, the one that sometimes gets referenced would be like, uh, soap operas that have been since, you know, on since the radio days and then transitioned into television and are still telling a weekly story. Um, you know, some of them have been going for, for decades and decades and are, um, attempting to, to tell one ongoing narrative. Um, this is a little different and a little more sprawling than the, the daytime soap formula. But I think that's a, uh, you know, one, one other kind of example of this, this idea of, a story that just keeps building on itself forever. Yeah, that's very true. And there are ways in which the Marvel story is very much like a soap opera sort of thing. And there are ways in which it's really not. 
Uh, one significant difference is that it's a bunch of separate threads that you can kind of look at separately. You know, there's Spider-Man, there's the X-Men, there's the Hulk, and the, like they're all sort of separate things and they can cross paths and they can refer to each other, but they also have their own history. I think the more important difference though, is that this is a kind of history that is documented in concrete form. It's in physical form and also in digital form. And it's, you know, you can kind of make the assumption that somebody who's into Spider-Man at a certain level is going to have read a bunch of Spider-Man stories that were published between 1962 and 1965 or 1966 in a way that you know you can't necessarily assume that somebody who is watching General Hospital now will even have access to episodes of General Hospital that came out 60 years ago. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and then, as you said, like there's these different threads where, you know, every month you're going to get um, – you know, depending on the, on the time, I, you know, eight to what, 25 comics uh, being published oh, every week. Now. I mean, yeah, there's, yeah. It's probably like uh, these days it's between like 10 and 15 a week. Usually I think. Mm -hmm. So yeah, dozens of new chapters, but in divergent paths. Um, yeah. And, and sometimes those paths are somewhat self-contained. Like there is uh, depending on the era of Marvel comics that we're talking about, like the X-Men universe kind of can be self-contained to its own side of things. And Spider-Man had been for a long time, kind of self-contained with other characters popping in. Um, and then the crossovers are where a lot of the fun happens. And in terms of like the, the narrative history of this, uh, you know, for any listeners who aren't familiar, we should, maybe we should jump back to those early days of Marvel where we started to see this emergence of those kinds of crossovers. So uh, famously, uh, Stanley with many incredible collaborators in terms of art and storytelling, most notably Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko, um, introduced uh, you know, a new wave of superheroes in the early Silver Age of, of comics in the, in the early 1960s uh, with Fantastic Four and Spider-Man. Uh, uh, in, in terms of the publishing industry, the comic book publishers had always just been chasing the trends and ch and chasing the genre uh, interests. And so as they, as they're bouncing back to superheroes for the first time, kind of since world war uh, two era, um, there's no mindset that this is now what Marvel comics is going to be. I don't think. Um, yeah, no, not at all. Uh, Marvel comics. In fact, the name Marvel comics group doesn't even start showing up until mid 1963, pretty much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's and, and it starts to show up, uh, and then with the tagline of like the the world's greatest magazines, is that what it is? Or yeah, I'm, well, world's greatest comics magazines, more that, Fantastic Four tagline. Right. What's interesting is that even though uh, there's a bunch of comics, they're all published by the same people in the same building at the same address. The names of the publishers are formally different, I and mean, they're they're all for tax reasons. I think like they're. they're they're all different at the beginning, um, and they're not names that anybody particularly remembers. But they're publishing what they're publishing is no superhero books between like 1957 and 61. I mean, there's that's that is a dead genre at that point. Like the national Superman, Batman, they're still doing it. Nobody else is doing it. So what the company that would become Marvel is publishing is monster comics, most of all. Mm -hmm. um, like with like science fiction tales and horror anthologies, uh, tales of suspense, tales to astonish, strange tales, journey into mystery, things like that. Uh, and they are anthologies. They have three or four complete stories in each issue. Almost never continued issue to issue. Once in a while, they will do a sequel to something that they've done before, but that's really pretty rare. 
Um, so there's monster comics. There's a couple Western comics. There's some war comics. And there are comics about teenage girls and young professional women. Patsy Walker, Patsy and Hebe, Millie the Model, Linda Carter, Student Nurse, Kathy the Teenage Tornado. And the really interesting thing is the first place where crossovers start happening is in those books. It's in the teenage girl books. You will see Kathy the Teenage Tornado meeting Millie the Model, meeting Patsy and her friend Hebe. You will see events in one comic having consequences in another one in really small ways, like not big consequential, like we're doing a crossover now kind of ways. But before they were doing it in the superhero books, they were doing it in those, which is really interesting to see. And the reason that they were doing it is that there were really only a very few people making them. It was like Stanley and two artists doing the teenage girl books. Mm -hmm. Stanley and a little bit later, it's Lee and Kirby and Ditko, who has no interest in crossovers. (laughs) <laughs> and Don Heck and just a couple other people. We don't know who the idea of having the superhero characters show up in each other's comics came from. It could well have been just kind of, it just kind of grew. It just kind of happened. There's a moment I talk about in the book in 1965, where there are four or five issues that come out where all of them are kind of feeding their plots into the other ones for the first time. And they don't make a big deal out of it. It's not, you know, like this is going to be continued in this other series. But in one week, there's an issue of X-Men comes out where Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch quit working with Magneto and they're wondering what to do next. And the next week, there's an issue of Avengers comes out where the Avengers need some new members and Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch see a newspaper story about it and go, this could be how we change our lives. And if you're reading just one of them, you're fine. If you're reading two of them, you see how they fit together. If you're reading all of them, suddenly there's a bigger picture. Yeah, that um, section of your book where you talked about the the um, the teenage girls and the young professional girl comics, that is where some of the ideas of crossovers seem to have first emerged from Marvel's publishing. And, you know, Stanley kind of having a hand in all of those was really fascinating. That was like all brand new information to me. And I loved that uh, that discovery. Uh, at least for me, it was a discovery. That uh, that is where some of that was emerging. As you said, they, you know, in chasing the genres, they're going to start doing superheroes and we get a wave of superheroes. We get, you know, uh, Fantastic Four is famously the first one. And then pretty soon thereafter, we're going to have Spider-Man and Iron Man and the X-Men and uh, the Hulk. And not all of them are going to be successful. Um, It it seems weird, I think, for people who are just familiar with Marvel films to say, like, Hulk was not a successful character. (laughs) His his comic had no vision. It it was just all over the place in those first issues. Uh, And... the first uh, issue is great, though. Oh, yeah. Like Hulk it, number one, it's it's just stunning. And actually, that, that remarkable series, The Immortal Hulk, that just finished a couple months ago, mm-hmm. so much of it builds on the raw material of just like the first six pages of the first issue of Hulk. Yeah, Jack Kirby's art in that, I think, is some of my favorite of that early Marvel yeah. stuff that he does. Um, his His style matches the Hulk so perfectly. Yeah. Um, and... You know, we're, we're, so, so Marvel's going to start pushing out these superhero comics. And as you said, like, it, it's not immediately they're saying like, oh, this is now our grand uh, canvas on which we're, we're 
uh, telling a directly interconnected story. It almost feels a little bit accidental that they start to say, oh, you know, let's grab some characters from here. And I think a huge part of that, um, and this is where uh, issues of like credit for who the creators are <laughs> in early Marvels are so, are so tricky uh, because of how the comics were produced and other things. But Stanley having editorial control and also like uh, scripting uh, all these books, I think is really important for this kind of cross pollination uh, because everything is, he's a funnel point, uh, you know, for, for yeah. so much of it. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And it, I mean, Kirby is also a funnel point because he's drawing unbelievable amounts. Of stuff how does drawing. he draw so much? I don't understand. Like when I go back and look at the page output that he had and how many issues in a single month are coming out with Jack Kirby art. And then even when he leaves a title, he's going to be doing the, uh, you know, the, the layouts for the new artists. Cause he's worried that they're not going to draw it right. Uh, so he's going to like frame out every panel and say, okay, but you're gonna put this figure here and this figure there. Cause that's, what's going to look visually interesting. He was just yeah. so fast. I mean, his, his party trick was drawing Captain America with his eyes closed. <laughs> I, I had not heard that. Uh, I, I believe it. I mean, he's he's an incredibly proficient artist, uh, and, and uh, not, I bet not only is it with his eyes closed, but it's also incredibly fast that he's yeah. going to draw in Captain America. Um, and this is going to change, I think, the nature of the storytelling. Um, and there's so much about Marvel in this early era that I think uh, is is foundational for what our our conception of of superhero comics is, but a huge part of it is also uh, the way that fandom starts to interact with these new Marvel characters and the way Stanley, uh, in his editorial, uh, you know, letters to to the readers, the way the letters uh, page develops, uh, Stan's soapbox is like a text document inside of issues, and also very much his Carnival Barker kind of persona. Uh, that he adopts where he's he's always selling uh, and always promoting um it, it creates this feeling around marvel comics that is just different than what had come before yeah very much so and visually it was really different conceptually it was really different and it was all completely seat of the pants like everything is just improvised at the last possible second there's so many like narrowly avoided uh, <laughs> deadline calamities in the first 10 years of marvel superhero output it's just amazing to to think that back that anything got done i mean there's so there's a great story which unfortunately might be an apocryphal story but it's a great story which is the first issue of daredevil was given to bill everett to draw bill everett had a big old drinking problem he was running really late like really 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 late on the first issue of daredevil which is the only issue he drew and at some point something was going to have to go to press. Like there was space reserved to the printer. There was space reserved to the distributor. We have to put something out. Daredevil is not ready. What are we going to do? And Stan says to Jack, like, we need to crank out something. Why don't we just take all those characters who don't have their own titles? Like, you know, giant man and the Hulk and yeah, I don't know. Uh, Iron Man, and we'll we'll just stick them all together, and let's call it the Avengers. <laughs> and you know, Kirby goes and draws a comic over the weekend, and Stan dialogues, and that's Avengers. Uh, that story, I think, is unfortunately apocryphal. The first issue of Avengers came out the same week as the first issue of X Men. Mm-hmm. One of them was probably a last minute job. Mm-hmm. Nobody's quite sure which, but job numbers suggest it was probably X Men. 
yeah nonetheless like yeah i mean (laughs) either of those have become phenomenally successful franchises (laughs) yeah um and that's when we talk about jack kirby and how amazing his output is um like in the modern day comic book industry there are artists who struggle to get out a monthly book where like okay Mm -hmm. we're i'm gonna be on for a six issue arc but i'm gonna have lead time like i'm gonna take eight or nine months to draw the six issues and jack kirby was drawing multiple issues uh a month for for marvel and sometimes like with that story i mean there's other versions of of stories that i've definitely heard where it's kind of like in a weekend he he makes up a story and draws the whole thing right um one other thing i think that is so fascinating about the sprawling nature of this and that it's kind of made up as they go along is that uh you know in in subsequent years new creators that grew up reading like look back at those early issues and we'll pick up something that had no it it was never intended to be like a MacGuffin for a future issue or a character was never intended to become you know uh you know a recurring character but they go back and pick up uh some of those things and you never know what it is that is going to suddenly become important you know 10 15 20 40 50 years down the line uh for this and so it's it's simultaneously like collaborative but almost like unintentional collaboration is what's happening in, yeah. in many of these instances. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, things come out of people trying to explain away mistakes in older stories or explain away stuff that just doesn't work. And then they, that, that becomes like the spur to their own creativity and you get a new character or a new story idea or whatever out of it. Um, there are things that are deliberate and direct homages. There are stories that come out of, trying to sort of tear down or overturn the aesthetic of some kind of older thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's every kind of reaction possible to some other story like, happens because it has to keep happening because there's deadlines. <laughs> deadline, like the deadline doom is underrated as one of the essential forces in Marvel comics history. Oh, I, th- I think the, um, in the general, deadlines. like, deadlines as muse is underrated yeah, um, right. you know th- this is where a lot of my academic work comes. I was like oh okay the deadline's up in a week okay now i'm really gonna knuckle down and yeah. like i've been thinking about it it's been percolating i've got pages of notes but now i've actually got to craft this into an essay yeah. uh and uh you know that's just me you know getting something to an editor of an essay collection i probably could have a little leeway but they have like the pressure of we have this slot where we have to have something at the printer or it's huge amounts of money are gone and in those early days of marvel they didn't have a huge amounts of money to play with right uh, <laughs> i mean at various points they haven't had huge amounts of money to play with uh it wasn't wasn't always disney money they were playing around with yeah exactly um another thing that i really enjoyed in your book is where you talk about kind of the, uh, the way that the different eras of marvel are oftentimes reactions to real world events and the history that is occurring is going to be influencing the creators. I edited a series of essay collections called the ages of superheroes, where we look at like the ages of uh, Superman or the ages of the X-Men where it's like, okay, why is this the X-Men story that we're getting in the sixties? What are the, what, what seems to be being reacted to in terms of the hopes, fears, concerns of the moment that is going to influence the art. Um, and you are able to, after reading 27,000 plus comics uh, are able to like step back and see some ebbs and flows and there's always going to be exceptions. There's always going to things, things that aren't fitting so nightly, but uh, nicely into this. But I think you're able to identify the major trends that seem to be affecting what stories are being made. Yeah. And that that was a really fun thing that happened as I was reading these. I mean, one of the questions that people have asked me is how did you stand reading all the really bad comics? Cause they're not all good. There, there's some really dire stuff in there. 
And the answer is, I mean, this is probably Stockholm syndrome talking, but the bad comics are fascinating because they're always bad in a way that is of their historical moment. Mm -hmm. They always speak to you like, what is the thing that is on our minds right now? However weird or malformed that is. And it's it's strange because it's it's hard to look at comics that are coming out now and to see what is ver- what what is so now about them because it's just the default. It's just what we're reading right now. I'm sure that if we look at comics that are coming out right now, 20 years from now, we're going to say, "Oh my God, that is so 2022." Oh, those poor people. Oh, oh. <laughs> They're, they're, you can definitely see what they're reacting to, but sometimes we need that distance yeah. uh, because I think both as artists and consumers, we're not always maybe as as aware of yeah. um, you know w- what it is that that's affecting us. And I love what you said about the, uh, the sometimes the the stuff that's not as of high quality as some of the others can still be really fascinating. I remember um, I was submitting. Uh, just academically, I was, I was working on this project about an X-Men comic in which they, they meet Frankenstein, but it's a, it's an alien android. It's a really yep. weird, that one. Uh, odd one. And I was doing this whole essay about this particular comic book for uh, an essay collection that was all about adaptations of Frankenstein. And in my essay, I made a note that this isn't a particularly good issue. <laughs> yeah. And one of the reviewer notes that came back was, why are you even talking about it then? I'm like, because this wasn't someone who did like pop culture stuff, you know, at all. Yeah. You know, it was only like literary. We're only talking about the canon. That's all that matters is the canon. Right, right, uh, right. I think this reviewer's mindset was. And I think it's so fascinating to dig into some of those things where it's like, how was this made? Why was this made? And uh, start to kind of explore some of those issues uh, can can be as fun as like just sitting back and saying, this is an amazing piece of art. It's like, well, this is a really odd thing that someone made. Let's let's dig into its existence, and, you know, and, and see what we can find. Yeah, I mean, there's there is an issue of Fantastic Four early on, like number nineteen, that I talk about because there's a bunch of later comics that kind of loop back to that because it's a it's a time travel story, and a bunch of other time travelers eventually end up in the same place at the same time. But it is in ancient Egypt, and why ancient Egypt? Well, because the Elizabeth Taylor Cleopatra movie was in the news in a big way at that moment. It was the thing that everybody was psyched about, everybody was looking forward to, and so we're thinking about ancient Egypt. And that's where that comes from. Yeah. And uh, sometimes it can be those pop culture, you know, what's going on with pop culture. Definitely. You will see influences of like, okay, this, this Marvel comic is, it just drips with it. This is a cold war comic. Uh, and uh, then later on, you might say, this is, you know, I, I can see uh, Vietnam uh, concerns uh, okay. in, in this other comic, you know, in a later era, or this is a post nine 11 comic in terms of the story, even if the story isn't like explicitly talking about, 9-11 in any way you can just feel the cultural pressures that were present uh on the on the creators as they were making these products yeah absolutely there's one of the comics that i was happiest to uh actually dig up a physical copy of when i was working on this was it was not something that was available in comic stores or newsstands uh this was a custom comic because marvel does these things where they will get corporate clients that will say like make a uh, we we want to we want to have a Fantastic Four comic that's about Fantastic Four going to a Target store. Great. So there's a little Target comic like that. Um, this was an Iron Man comic that was commissioned by a, a manufacturer of toy drones, like drones that you can get and like fly in your backyard. Uh-huh. And it's about Iron Man using drone technology to you know defeat Modok or whoever he's fighting that month. Um, and it comes out just about exactly the same time that there is an Iron Man storyline in Iron Man's regular comic where 
drones are being used as military technology. And at the same time, there's like an Iron Man comic about like, oh, and then there's this other kind of drone that <laughs> Iron Man uses to fight, but you can also, you can get it as a toy and like, yeah, you know, this one's promoting it. This other one's like, whoa, what about yeah. this drone stuff? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So uh, there's corporate interests that are going to influence the stories that are going to be told at times. Uh, it, it's just, there's, there's so many things that are at play. And I think that's why it's endlessly fascinating to kind of yeah. explore uh, th- this world because there's so much that is being put out uh you know it's there's always the next deadline and and there will always be a next spider-man story uh that's going to be published uh from marvel and yet we can start to dissect it and find all these like influences that are are part of its creation totally um i mean marvel has always been first and foremost a commercial concern and that's a really interesting thing about it because part of what it does as a commercial concern is try to make things that a whole lot of people are going to like, that are going to be popular. And part of what it does as a commercial concern is acknowledge that its costs are so low relatively for making a new thing that it can afford to experiment. And if like one out of 15 or one out of 20 wild experiments that it tries totally connects that's worth it it's Mm -hmm. a hit (laughs) matt fraction has talked about when he started doing his hawkeye comic with david aha the assumption was this is going to last six issues and we're out we're just going to do this weird thing it'll be this weird little arty one-off and of course their hawkeye turned into a gigantic hit and it is the basis for the hawkeye tv show that was just out a couple months ago yeah it's um I mean, I've seen the list at some, or, or the number reported at times of like how many characters Marvel owns the you know copyright or trademark on. And it's it's over 10,000, I'm pretty sure. Uh, just because, I mean, and some of that is, well, they own, you know, a trademark on every, you know, member of the Bugle uh, newspaper staff uh, who's been named. You know, <laughs> there's they're, they're, they're on that. So it's not like there's this many superheroes that they've created, but there are also a lot of superheroes that no one's ever heard of that Marvel probably owns, or well, now Disney owns uh, some rights to. Yeah, and there's there's this amazing thing online, the, the Marvel Chronology Project, uh, and I've I've contributed a little bit of uh, brain power to it. What they do is track every appearance of every character who has appeared more than once, <laughs> and the and the order in which that character experienced those stories. And, and this is yeah. not going to be publication order because marvel chronology bounces all over the place and yes. you get issues that are flashbacks you get uh i mean right now chris claremont is promoting a a nightcrawler series um miniseries that's gonna be coming up and i had him on as a guest and he mentioned that it's taking between it takes place between two panels of one of his original x-men run yeah <laughs> you know yeah totally also there's time travelers which uh, complicates matters further and then, you know, different versions of the same time traveler that are going to be uh, showing up with like Kang and Immortus and Rama. No, is it Rama Tut? <laughs> Rama Tut, yep. Uh, yep. The Scar- and the Scarlet Centurion and Iron Lad. Let's not forget Iron Lad. Mm. And trying to tackle reading 27,000 uh, comics. Are there high points or low points in the Marvel comic history for you? <laughs> oh, are there ever. Um <laughs> Do you mean in terms of particular comics or, or I think uh, like your personal or... interests? Are there like eras that it's like, OK, this this one really resonates with me or some where you're like, I'm just not feeling it. This this isn't quite landing. 
Yeah, I mean, there are periods that are real slack for me, which is why you know, when I was reading comics for these, I was not reading them in order. I was just reading whatever I felt like on any given day. I grazed. Uh, there are moments that are real peaks for me. I think, obviously, like an early peak is the kind of like 65, 66 period where Kirby and Ditko are really hitting their stride. I think there's a period around 1974, 75, where the new like the new kids the the people who were just coming in at marvel who were second generation uh, who had grown up reading the early fantastic fours and spider-mans and and avengers were really finding their own voice and pushing to do something really different and stuff is really interesting around them so this is uh There's... like the creators who had been like yeah like actually the target age audience of being kind of adolescent and young teenagers ha- yeah. are now in their early 20s and have found their way into the industry and some of them are like, well, you know, let's keep Fantastic Four and Spider-Man going and kind of hold space just in case Stan and Jack and Steve ever feel like coming back. They're never coming back. They're never <laughs> going to come back. But where the interesting stuff is happening is over in the weird little titles in Defenders, in Howard the Duck, in, you know, uh, Master of Kung Fu, in Amazing Adventures and Kill Raven, uh, where they don't have a golden age quotes to reach back to. So they're just trying to do something fresh and new and interesting. And very often they are. There's a period around 2010 that I really love where there is just this kind of creative explosion and all these people like really, really stretching out. I'm really, really interested to see like what's going to happen now. Like my favorite thing for the last couple of years has been Jonathan Hickman and company's X-Men line. Mm-hmm. Like I've been reading all those books every week as they come out and they are fascinating and they don't all always hit, but the ones that hit really, really hit. And I, so Hickman just left those, but apparently like they are so intensely collaboratively plotted out that the writer's room had already kind of worked up the general direction of the next three years worth of stories by the time Hickman left. I, that, that's one that like I've I've heard about. I have not been able to dig into the most recent X Men. I'm sure as it uh, becomes more plentifully available on the Marvel uh, Digital Comics app, I will I will yeah. uh, read through those. X Men was my first love uh, in comic books, and it's what I ended up writing my doctoral dissertation on. You and, uh, so what what period of X Men was like the one that you really glommed onto? So I my first issue was like X Men number two eighty, which is just after the Claremont era, wow, the okay. first comic book I ever picked up, wow. uh, and and read. And so um, I know from from my dissertation, I read all of the Uncanny X Men line up through you know, it was like two thousand five or something, right. sometime around that era. You know when I was working on my dissertation, you got to cut it off at some point. Sure. <laughs> um, so I've uh, the the more recent stuff I just um, haven't haven't been picking up as actively, and now I do a lot of my reading through the the um, you know, the Marvel app, which has a lag time before the the issues become available. Uh, Marvel Unlimited? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's like three months now. That's not mm-hmm. that's not bad at all. But yeah, House of X, Powers of Ten, like that that kind of double-headed story is, it's fa- it's fascinating because it is designed for people who have never read X-Men before, for people who have been reading X-Men continuously for 40 years, and for people who used to read X-Men for a while about 20 years ago and then stopped. And it delivers something different to each of those audiences. Which, which, is, which is so tricky to do. <laughs> it's, it's unbelievably tricky. And 
it pulls it off really, really well. Actually, can I tell you about a particular moment in it that I thought was really great? At? Please do. So there's a moment, without spoiling anything, there's a moment uh, in the middle of uh, House of X where we see Nightcrawler and Wolverine and they're in the middle of a mission and everything has gone south and they are about to do something that is going to salvage the mission's objectives and it's also going to kill them. And they like they know they're about to die. They're about to do this thing that's going to kill them. And what Wolverine says to Nightcrawler is like, so uh, you still think there's something for us beyond this? And Nightcrawler says like, you know, when, when we wake from this mortal slumber, I will be there for you waiting with open arms. Now, so for people who have never read X-Men before, that is a pretty kind of, you know, straightforward exchange about who they are, what their belief system is. For people who used to read X-Men a while ago and, you know, then maybe drifted away, that is absolutely perfectly in character for what each of them would do. Uh, It's like, it is a real kind of, this is okay, you've got these characters moment. And for people who've been reading X-Men comics all along, you go, wait a second. Nightcrawler has actually <laughs> been to heaven and returned from it. Wolverine has actually been to hell and returned from it. They have firsthand knowledge of the afterlife that they are apparently speculating about here. And that means that something really different has to be going on here than what appears to be going on here, mm-hmm. which is the case. Right. Oh, I like that a lot. Uh, yeah. Cause um, I, I think there is an aspect of, Marvel comics that it's just intimidating for new readers yeah. uh, because it is 27,000 plus issues of what is presented as a never ending continuous narrative that interlocks. And it can be really hard, I think to even try to find a foothold yeah. um, to try and find an entry point that feels accessible. And so for a writer to try and give something to everyone <laughs> like, Hey, if you're yeah. a new reader who heard buzz about this uh, or a young reader, that's just getting into comics you're going to have a certain level of appreciation for this exchange, but long-time readers are going to have a different level of appreciation and both are valid, uh, you know, yeah, reactions to have from it. And you know, the, the thing that I talk about in the book, one of the great virtues of this giant story for people who just want to find a place into it someplace is you can really go in anywhere. What you have to have is you have to be willing to not know things because mm-hmm. it's going to tell you everything you need to know. It's not going to tell you everything you want to know, but it is going to tell you everything that you need to know if it is at all decently crafted. That is a trick that mainstream comics writers have had to develop. Like it is an adaptation they have had. It is the gills they have had to grow <laughs> to make uh, it work. Yeah, yeah, various points they've said, like every issue is someone's first issue. And so if you're reading comics from the 1980s like you get a recap of every character's powers every issue and it can start to feel tedious if you're reading them back to back to back to back in in real quick succession uh but even when it was being published i think for regular readers you know there was a month off in between so it didn't it probably didn't hit quite the same as when you've picked up a collection of of old comics and they're printed right next to each other yeah and it is often much more subtle now Uh, Mm um there's still a lot of exposition that but there's there's clever and subtle ways of delivering it but you're still not going to know everything and that's kind of the pleasure of it. That is a feature, not a bug. To not know something and then a little later have an, oh, I get it now moment. I get it now moments are great. They're like one of the most fun things you can possibly experience as a reader. And I love um, how 
you can, depending on your level of investment, you can go seek out like, okay, this is referencing some other issue and you can go find it, <laughs> you know, yeah, totally. uh, and, and try to find it. And uh, if you want to go see, um, like, I still remember reading one where it's like, it's snowing. If you want to go see why it's snowing, go look at this issue of Thor because he's finding the frost giants over in right. Thor, yeah. um, you know, something like that. But if you don't go seek that out, you just know because like, of an editor's box that's telling the reader, like the reason it's snowing in summer uh, is because there's a right. fight going on right. over in Thor. And that's all the context you need if all you want to read is that Spider-Man comic. Exactly. Um, and and so it can be a lot of fun. Um, I, I understand why for some readers, though, it, it can be a turnoff. I, th- I think it can go both ways. Like for me, picking up X-Men number 280, which is the end of a multi-issue, <laughs> multi-storyline uh, arc of the Mirror Island saga, but, you know, which is crossing over Uncanny X-Men and, and X-Factor. Yeah. And I picked it up. And I, this is before there was an X-Men cartoon. This is before there was any like cultural um, awareness of the X-Men really as a franchise. I was just fascinated. I was like, there's has to be like 25 characters, I think, that are named in that issue. <laughs> and and I didn't know who any of them were, but I was just, I wanted to go find out more and learn yeah. more about all of these. I think for some people, it, it becomes like, eh, that's impenetrable. And, and it's turned off. And that's a valid reaction to have too. And I think it's something that the comics industry has been trying to find ways to to remove that aspect for its entire existence. Yeah. <laughs> you know, trying, trying to serve both audiences. Totally. Um, are there any uh, fa- favorite oddities? Because when a company has been trying to meet deadlines for 50 plus years. There's gonna be some comics that come out where you're like, huh, that's really strange. Yeah. Right, uh, do, you, do you have any favorites? Uh, you know, whether it's like NFL super pro um, or <laughs> I've, I've definitely, I've given my NFL super pro talk. Um, <laughs> there's, there's some, there's some amazing stuff in those late issues of NFL super pro, not amazing in a good way, but that, like it, it's, there's some, there's some real eye openers. Um, there are a lot of like wonderfully weird moments. Uh, there is an issue of Howard the Duck that I've. You know, I mean, given those are all wonderfully people. weird, right? Uh, and Howard the Duck is is a, a pretty bizarre comic on its own. But this was an issue. This was uh, number sixteen. Steve Gerber, who was writing it, had blown the deadline so badly that there was no way that anybody was going to be able to draw a full issue. But even like Gene Colan, who was his usual collaborator, was very fast. And so this issue is just a prose piece about Gerber and his life and his relationship with deadlines and his relationship with Howard the Duck and a Las Vegas chorus girl and an ostrich and a lampshade. And he just got a bunch of different artists to draw one or two page images and slap this prose story onto it. And that is that issue. (laughs) And it's fantastic. And I think many years later, uh, he ended up uh, doing a series called Nevada for Vertigo, which was about the Las Vegas chorus girl and the ostrich and the lampshade. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And it's one of those, like you said, sometimes those oddities are, you know, more interesting than like a really successful, uh, you know, epic six issue storyline or 12 issue storyline that spans an entire year. Sometimes just having those weird quirky things that have come out from a major publisher, uh, they can be as fascinating as anything else. And sometimes, sometimes, you know, things are purely for business reasons. Like apparently at some point, a couple of years ago, Marvel's legal team went to the editorial team and said, Hey, we need to uh, preserve our trademark on the name giant man can you please publish something that is called giant man? (laughs) And this is during the war of the realms crossover. And some editor called up Leah Williams and said, we need to have something called giant man. Can you please write a tie in to war of the realms that is called giant man? 
And there's a perfectly lovely little miniseries that comes out of it. It's a lot of fun. It would not have existed had the business <laughs> office not said, we need something with this title. Yeah, I, re- I remember, uh, you know, years after New Mutants had become X-Force, all of a sudden there was a New Mutants miniseries. And I was kind of like, why? And then someone, some conversation where someone was like, oh, they, they needed to renew their New Mutants uh, trademark. It's yeah. probably why uh, there was suddenly a new miniseries that was being called New Mutants when all those characters had like moved on to other titles and, it, you know, had been adapted. But, oh, let's get the gang back together one more time okay. and run it back for this business reason or you legal know, I, reason. I don't know if you've been business. reading the, the, the recent uh, New Mutants stuff that Vida Ayala has been writing. I have not. It's, it, it's really interesting. It's drawn by Rod Rice, who is he is a younger artist who is working kind of in that Bill Sienkiewicz tradition, which is a strange tradition to be working in. It looks great, but the writing New Mutants in 2022 has, I realized, like has to be an incredibly difficult line to walk because it has to be about New Mutants, right? It has to be about like New Mutant characters, and it also has to be about these characters who have been called the New Mutants for the past 40 years. So <laughs> how, do, how do you serve it? Yeah. How, how, do you, how do you accomplish that? Because we have... Uh, you know, inter- or, or associations with certain characters being on the new mutants. Yeah. Uh, like, and yet they would, I mean, even with Marvel's slow, very slow uh, narrative timescale, yeah. um, you know, they, they would not be the young teenagers at school, which is what you expect a new mutants title to be. Right. But, you know, you can't have a new mutants title that doesn't have Danny Moonstar in it and doesn't have Rain Sinclair in it. And so figuring out how to make that work with like, also, this is a comic about kids. Mm-hmm. I, I think that sometimes those constraints, which uh, can can really, at times, I think, hamstring creators, where it's like, okay, the audience is expecting this. Uh, the editorial team is demanding this. Uh, legal team is asking for this. Uh, the, the Comics Code Authority is preventing this. Um, it, it, it actually leads to some pretty amazing creativity, uh, yeah. you know, that, that comes out of, you know, facing all of these influences. Yeah. Um, just, I'm just curious as you're as you're sitting down to write all the marbles. How do you like? How many versions of how you're going to organize this kind of book do you have to go through as a as a writer who's like trying to tackle this kind of project? Uh, well, so let me put it this way: I wrote this book twice. Mm. <laughs> I believe it. I you know I wrote it the first time and I finished it and I polished it and I was done with it and it was terrible. Oh no, that's gonna be. It was, it was just. Oh, hard. It didn't work. It was me talking to the inside of my head. It was just not fun to read. Mm-hmm. And I ended up throwing out uh, like 85% or so of that version. And going, you know, going into intensive therapy for a little while. Um, and reconceptualizing the entire thing and mm-hmm. thinking about what I wanted it to do for people who were reading it, how I wanted to present myself, how I wanted to present my persona, what I wanted the voice to be, what I wanted it to do. And the idea that I wanted to be a tour guide, to be somebody who has covered every inch of this territory. And I don't want to show you the whole territory. I don't want to even show you my favorite bits of the territory necessarily. I want to show you some parts that will let you discover what your favorite parts are going to be and some pathways you might take that might lead you to some places you will find interesting. Mm -hmm. 
and I want to make it something that is pleasurable and fun for the person who is reading it, even if they don't particularly care about the subject. That was what I wanted to do. And that was how the second version got written. And even then, like I was still weeding stuff and resorting stuff and throwing stuff out. There's a bunch of chapters that I ended up cutting that um, a couple of them I ended up kind of printing up as little chapbooks and just selling on book tour. Because mm-hmm. um, they didn't belong in the book, but also I liked them too much to get rid of them altogether. So yeah. they're they're around. <laughs> well, but, it, yeah, the like organization- even hearing about what the project was, immediately I was like, how can you approach like a presentation of information about having read 27,000 comics. Yeah. Uh, and and um, the way that you end up doing it, I thought was very clever where you, each chapter is very much its own discussion. Um, and, but, but it, it is illuminating about the entire Marvel story, but it's really focused in on, on various points. So, you know, you may have a short chapter like uh, about those, uh, those early, um, comics about the the, the teenage girls and, and yeah. the young career girls and then you'll have a chapter about shang chi and you know a chapter about the x-men uh but it, but it's it's not trying to give the entire history of the x-men it's like here's some key moments in x-men history that are inflection points for what our larger conception of the x-men have become you can point to some moments where it's like okay this is where something is happening there's so many issues where it's not <laughs> you know where where it's like okay well that was an x-men comic and maybe it was entertaining enough but it's not an inflection point about like defining who the x-men are uh and and you kind of highlight for a lot of these different threads of the marvel tapestry um where what some of those uh those issues are yeah i mean each chapter is a different kind of cross-section and some of them are character-based or story-based like there's a big old section about dark rain uh but also there are shorter chapters that are about cutting through the story or, or looking at a section of the story that's not necessarily about a character. It can be about a time. It can be about a theme or whatever. Mm-hmm. The big chapters kind of go chronologically in terms of where the main focus of them is. Like I wanted to kind of represent each rough period roughly, but everyone mm-hmm. also kind of like extends forward and backward. Uh, and then they kind of all get rolled up into the the chapter about the the uh, the big like ninety three part X Men uh, a big ninety three part like Avengers New Avengers Secret Wars story because a lot of things kind of thematically feed into that um, and then there's the very personal chapter that's the end of the main part of the book and then there's the appendix which the appendix is weird like the appendix came out of a talk that i gave at my favorite comic store books with pictures a few years ago where i was like okay i'm just going to tell the complete marvel story in 45 minutes and i'm going to condense it down to like five particular characters and their pathways through this story and that ended up being a big chunk of the first version of the book kind of cut into era by era and distributed through the book and like i said that didn't work it just did not work. But I like the idea of trying to summarize this unsummarizable story mm-hmm. and just get a sense of if you're looking at it from space, if you're looking at it from a huge distance, what are the contours of the continents? What does the overall shape of the thing look like? What's what's the bit you can see from space? Yeah. 
And it's it's a really fascinating exercise because there are so many like false starts or uh, things that feel insignificant that become later, you know, significant things that feel significant and that become insignificant or get um, entirely removed from continuity and say, well, that story didn't count. Uh, but but what is kind of like our received version of like the Spider-Man story right now? And it's it's so different than what you're if you're like sitting down and read from month to month to month to month, you know, every appearance of Spider-Man in Marvel Comics. That's a very different thing than what we think of a spider-man story yeah really is um this podcast is all about the idea of like discussing a deep dive on a great character in a great story uh this discussion is just too broad (laughs) in trying to cover all the marvels to really dig in but do you have characters that you think of are like truly great characters that have come out of marvel comics and this um this unique mode of storytelling and creating a narrative oh god i'm so many i you know Spider-Man is a phenomenal character. Like there is something at the core of Spider-Man that is so interesting and so refreshing and so original. And you can tell so many kinds of stories with him. He, you know, he's visually interesting. You can put him in any kind of context and that makes him more interesting. He is really vulnerable and also really resilient in ways that like, you know, that's great for an adventure story because he can pull off all kinds of stuff and he always still seems to actually be in danger. Mm-hmm. Um, He's funny. He has an incredibly strong internal motivation, like the whole you know, responsibility thing. Like that's his excessive sense of responsibility drives him in a way that I don't think you can say of really pretty much any other like pop culture character. Like that's that's exceptional about him, and that's you know that's how you can have like three or four stories a month that involve this guy and (laughs) it just keeps working i think there are some you know there are some minor characters who are very dear to my heart i mean squirrel girl i go on about in the book like squirrel girl's fantastic and squirrel girl was a joke for 25 years it she was a character who was conceived of as just kind of a one-off joke character and for 20 plus years after that was like "Uh, can you believe we published a comic about squirrel girl and then Ryan North and Erica Henderson came along and figured out like, no, there's actually something fascinating about this particular character. And what is fascinating about her is she's got these kind of dumb powers and goofy costume, and she's really silly. And what she can really do is that she's incredibly good at creative nonviolent conflict resolution. (laughs) And that's yeah, we, amazing. And that's, we, we, we have done a podcast episode on that Squirrel Girl run uh, from Ryan oh, North. Yes. Or at least the, the first trade paperback, I think, is what we uh, we were tackling at the time. And yeah. it, it, that is a beautiful example of something that is almost, you know, a throwaway joke in one issue of something that yeah. kind of just lingers and then gets picked up decades later yeah. and becomes something that is hugely successful. It's so good. It is so much fun. Like, I love it. My kid, when he was 10 years old, loved it. You know, like, it, it's, it's just an absolutely spectacular piece of comedy writing and action writing and really emotive, sweet, clever, charming writing and drawing. Uh, any other characters you want to name check real quick as far as great characters from the Marvel Universe? I know there's too many. We've oh, touched I mean, on there's, <laughs> there's, there are thousands, but <laughs> there's a billion. Like, you know, I mean, they seem obvious, but like Wolverine, what a great character Wolverine is. 
Mm-hmm. What a fantastically weird, complicated character he is. The Hulk. There is so much that has been done. The Hulk is so flexible, so variable. Daredevil. Think of all of the amazing, like there is no Daredevil chapter in the book because there's like four or five completely <laughs> different takes on Daredevil that I love. They all really work and they're all really, really different from each other. They don't feel tonally of a piece. That's one character that seems to have had uh, like eras where it's like, this is like the dark and gritty era. This is the fun swashbuckling era. And um, it's fascinating that it doesn't feel like if you read one issue and compared it to the other, you'd say this is a different character, but it's always Daredevil. It's yeah. it's still just Daredevil. Yeah, really is. I, I mean, similarly with Hulk, I think there's something inbaked into probably those first six issues because they had they were still figuring out so much that they just kind of had different parameters for what is what activated his powers, what right. uh, you know, what what the level of power was. That every writer who comes along and just kind of says, "Well, here's a new spin on that," and it just works for the Hulk. Uh, is he a man or a monster, or is he both? <laughs> Yes, that that some other characters like you get a very um, you, there's a pretty definite version of who Spider-Man is. Right. Yeah. Uh, but but Hulk, it's like, you know, we're going to go do smart Hulk for a while. OK, yeah. that that works for that character. And, you know, uh, Spider-Man, oh. like, like they say in the movie, anyone can wear the mask. That's yeah. Uh, they're, they're, it feels like in the last uh, maybe 10, 15 years, they've they've done more and more with yeah. with the uh, kind of expanding the, the boundaries of Spider-Man. Yeah. Um. As far as great stories, there's so much, you know, if, if no one uh, is likely going to hear this episode and go want to go read 27,000 <laughs> issues. You of should Marvel don't Comics. do what I did. Yeah. Save yourself. But You're still young. Do you have favorite storylines that maybe are self-contained that they could go find a, a trade paperback at the library or at a, a comic book store or a bookstore? Um, do you have, do you have favorite stories that just for you still stand up and hold, you know, have stood the test of time or you just think uh, that was really great creativity and artistry on display. Yeah. I mean, I, I absolutely do. And I'm going to play coy and not name them mm-hmm. because I, like my whole thing is like, no, I'm going to point you towards the, the ones that, that, that you like mm-hmm. go, 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 go find a thing. Yeah. I, there are things that I particularly loved going back to and revisiting for this, or that when I went back to reread them for the book, I was like, this hasn't just held up. This got better while I wasn't looking at it. <laughs> uh, there, you know, there's a couple that I don't even talk about in this book because I've, I've written about them elsewhere. Like one of my all time favorite things is uh, the warlock stuff that Jim Starlin did in the mid seventies, mm-hmm. which is, it's unbelievably dark. Like it's crazy, crazy dark and smart and weird as hell and really really visually and artistically distinctive that's you know that's my jam um yeah i think that's a wonderful thing about marvel comics is that it's been around for so long there are so many corners that you're likely to find something that suits your taste even if you don't think you're a superhero comic book reader because there's wild cosmic side of things there's the uh you know the magic side of the marvel universe there's the street level heroes of the marvel universe there's the coming of age uh you know buildings roman style storytelling of young heroes finding their place in the world there's you know the x-men side with it with it there's good old superhero stuff you know where it's just we're, we're getting the you know the, the biggest hits uh together and and just telling a superhero story um so there's Every flavor kind of has uh, has existed within uh, the the breadth and depth of Marvel's Marvel's comic book output. Yeah, 
sometimes the same week, sometimes the same issue. Sometimes the same character yeah. <laughs> being uh, very, 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 you know, presented in very different ways. Yeah. Somebody recently asked me for like a, a reading list of cosmic daredevil stories. It was like, yeah, there's more than a couple of cosmic daredevil stories. <laughs> more than you would expect. Yeah. He's, he's usually the street level, uh, you know, law, uh, law room drama, right? Lawyer drama slash street level superhero. But it's like, oh, no, he, he gets out there. Uh, magic stories, too, for him. Uh, yeah. I think more often than people think he's involved with Doctor Strange and magic stuff. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Douglas, for coming on. Um, can you tell our listeners uh, where they could find your book? You can find all of the Marvels, A Journey to the Ends of the Biggest Story Ever Told, anywhere books are sold. And having done this, are you still as engaged with Marvel Comics as you were when you started the project? I'm looking forward to going to the comic store tomorrow morning. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that. Uh, well, I think that's going to wrap up this episode. Douglas, thank you so much for coming on. Listeners, thank, thank you, so you for much. downloading uh, this episode. Uh, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast and your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Scott Toft, who composed our theme music. You can reach us by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com or us on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod or at jadorowski, and our producer Andrew is at Minute. and our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. Douglas, is there anything you would like to plug uh, as we're heading out here? Uh, my own podcast, The Voice of Latveria, should be returning in just a few weeks. All right. Well, thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. Um, in trying to just undertake, oh, sorry, I think I bumped my mic. I'm going to give a moment so we can edit out that little ring that I think just happened.